right. Well, tonight we are going to be in the book of Judges. We'll be, uh, we're going to read the entirety of chapter 13, which is 25 verses. <clears throat> uh, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can find our passage uh, beginning in page 213 in the Pew Bible. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now uh, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. <coughs> For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat and the, with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he, that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. 
And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir, in, stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtel. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Right, well, we have finally come to the last judge that is spoken of in the book of Judges. He is the last judge also listed by name in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 as an exemplar of the faith, one who accomplished great deeds for the people of God in the name of the Lord. He is also the judge in this book uh, about whom the most is written, the most ink is spilled uh, for this uh, judge, four chapters specifically. Even, even with an entire chapter dedicated to his birth. Well, what's going on here? Of course, we were talking about Samson, and Samson is unlike any of the other judges who have come before him. As we will go on to see, uh, you know, whereas other judges would raise up men and armies to, to fight for them and with them, Samson is going to do everything himself with his own hands. Further, Samson is a bit of a mystery or perhaps a mixed bag because, or, or maybe best described as a flawed hero. Uh, he, he, Samson accomplished incredible feats with supernatural power, but he also seemed to have a tragic weakness for women uh, that he shouldn't have been messing around with. His end is tragic yet noble. And so we're going to do our best here over the coming weeks uh, to unravel this knot of Samson the judge uh, and we begin tonight with his birth and what we learn from the birth of Samson is that salvation begins with the Lord and therefore since it begins with the Lord it begins in unlikely places we're going to look at each of those aspects tonight that salvation begins with the Lord and thus it begins in unlikely places so first salvation begins with uh, the Lord and, uh, and, of course, uh, in, in Judges, uh, the whole situation begins, as it usually does, uh, with what we can only call the, uh, the faithlessness, uh, and I don't have that uh, slide written down, but the faithlessness of the people of God. Uh, we are told in verse 1 that Israel yet again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord, for his part, disciplined Israel and gave them into the hands of the Philistines. Now, I'm going to pull up a map here real quick. And so here is the basic map of Israel at this time. But there is a coastal region, I'll pull it up in just a second, uh, on the western side um, where the Philistines were that, would go up, that goes up the left side of Judah and, and into Dan. And so you'll see when I pull it up here, you may, well, you might see it or not, may not see it. It's on the left side there, it says Philistia. It's going to be a little hard to see there, but it's on the bottom left of what, was is, what is Israel there. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to overlay both of them, so uh, I tried to do it, but it didn't work. So, <laughs> so um, but it, you can kind of see where they're at. And so it, it, they, they basically cover into a good section of Judah and then also into overlaps into the tribe of Dan. And... And so the Philistines are known for being a constant thorn in the side of Israel, as well as an occasional oppressor of Israel. They are a coastal city, 
uh, known primarily for the five massive cities they had and fierce warriors, and also they hate Israel. Uh, even, even more, we are told that Israel was oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. That, you know, if you go back earlier in the book of Judges, Israel used to have periods of rest and faithfulness that lasted 40 years. Now they have oppression that lasts 40 years. 40 years was how long Israel wandered in the desert before they came into the promised land. And why did they wander in the promise? Why did they wander in the wilderness? Because of disobedience and idolatry. Things are starting to sound a little familiar. Old habits die hard. And so Israel is oppressed effectively for what the Bible would consider a generation. That means Samson's parents were either born or children when the Philistines became the oppressors of Israel. They've grown up in the oppression of Israel. And maybe this helps to explain a, a missing feature in all this oppression in Israel. The missing feature in the normal cycle of the judges is, is that Israel is not crying out for deliverance. There is no cry for help to the Lord. There's not even a disingenuous cry, a, a kind of get us out of this jam and we'll be really good boys and girls, uh, you know, wheeling and dealing like they've tried to do before. Not even that. Nothing. One author noted, it would seem that Israel has become accustomed to servitude. And we can do that with sin, can't we? We can become accustomed to the misery and the oppression of sin that we stop even making any noise about it because this is just how life is. I just must be this sinful. This must just be who I am. We become so locked into sinful patterns and habits that we resign ourselves with a sigh but make no effort to break free or seek help or even just cry out to God. We need to take that in. Israel is not even asking anyone to save them. And in a way, this is where salvation begins. With a people who cannot save themselves a people who do not even seem to entertain deliverance as an option. They cannot seem to, to bring it even as a possibility in their minds. There is no hope to kindle, it would seem. And this is where things could have ended, if you think about it. God could have just allowed Israel to just quietly be subsumed and assimilated into Philistia and the surrounding nations and just become another uh, another assimilated group, people group into the, into the tradition of, of Canaan. But thankfully, graciously, we see the next place where salvation begins, which is the faithfulness of the Lord. Because if God's people are faithless, the Lord is faithful. The Lord initiates salvation on Israel's behalf. Without asking, uh, without asking Israel, without requiring Israel to ask for it. And there are two major considerations here, even at this point. First is one considering redemptive history itself. The, the idea that God initiates salvation before his people even ask for it is, uh, is something that God does repeatedly throughout the history of, of, of the Bible. Adam and Eve rebel. God curses. 
and then promises deliverance, even covering them with animal skins. Humanity rebels against God, and God judges with a flood, but delivers the human race from total annihilation through Noah and his family. Humanity recovers from the flood and begins to to flourish, but then rebels again, building a tower of Babel. And God comes down and judges humanity, confusing and scattering uh, the peoples. But then he immediately goes to Abraham with the promise to bless all the nations through him. The simple point made again and again in the scriptures that God is the gracious God. He is the gracious one. But it is precisely here that so many people get confused. Many people actually entertain the idea that they are more gracious than the the biblical God. They imagine God as being incredibly harsh because he judges sin. But that is, of course, because they do not understand the nature of of the wickedness and evil of sin. But the same people who feel that uh, God is too harsh about sin will also object usually to those God will have mercy on as well. The reality is that people make terrible gods. We make really bad decisions when we put ourselves in the place of the Lord. Humanity as a race has fallen, which means that our pursuit of God is twisted and corrupted such that we replace God even as we pursue him. Even as we're chasing that divine design to worship, we twist it and we replace God with the things of earth and treat things of earth as though they were divine. We are spiritually blind, deaf, and dumb. No one seeks God. There is none righteous, not even one. But God initiates salvation for the unworthy precisely because we are unworthy of it and unable to do anything for it. He is the good and gracious God, and we are Israel, sinful, idolatrous, and given up. Second, uh, there is a consideration here with respect to God's church. The church of God as an institution is not incorruptible. And we know this from church history. Even the book of Revelation records ways that, that churches can uh, become corrupted. They, churches can become churches that defend and hold on to the truth but forget how to love. Churches who love everyone but in turn lose the truth. Churches that are asleep or dying. Churches who are folding under the pressure or, or of persecution. Churches who are lukewarm, rich, and comfortable. And even here, a church doesn't awaken itself out of its own slumber, sin, or stupidity. Christ initiates the call, as hard as it may be. He threatens and awakens his churches. He rebukes and comforts his churches. He reforms his churches. No, we're in, sec- we're in point two. We've covered one verse. We're going to go through the rest a lot faster, I promise. <laughs> so, um, but but salvation, salvation begins with the Lord. And nowhere is that more clear than the beginning of the story of Samson. And so salvation also begins, because of this, in unlikely places. And there's two aspects to this. First, it begins with an unlikely couple. 
Now, it's, it's not that it's unlikely necessarily because of where uh, uh, Samson's parents are. Uh, they are in the town of Zorah in the tribe of Dan. Now, remember, the northern part of Philistia does intrude into the tribal territory of Dan. Um, technically, though, Zorah was just about five miles outside of the uh, boundaries of Philistia. But they're right on the edge of the enemy. And uh, that means that Samson's parents would have been under the Philistine thumb for quite some time. Right? It's, that's very different than if you were a Reubenite who was way far away across the Jordan. Like You still would have probably had felt the Philistine oppression, but not nearly as keenly as Samson's family did just five miles outside of Philistia. And, uh, and, but the couple uh, we, is, is nobody special in particular. We're not even given uh, Manoah's wife's name. Uh, she's just called Manoah's wife. Or even, as many translators say, she's just referred to as the woman. Now, that may actually be a thematic issue tying to the fact of uh, the, the, the repeatedly um, a repeated place that women have to play in Samson's story uh, over several chapters. Uh, but uh, um, I don't know. I'm a bit undecided that on that at this point. Um, but, we're, we're, we just, but we have Manoah and we have Manoah's wife. And so... But what makes them unlikely to give birth to a great judge of Israel is one that that's just unlikely, period. But even more, we're told that Manoah's wife is barren. She is unable to have any children. Now, it's when we hear barren, though, then, then it, you know, when we read our Old Testament, then, then that should immediately take us back to Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was barren. And then Isaac's wife, Rebecca, who was also barren. A lot of times we forget that one. <laughs> so uh, she was barren. And then Jacob's wife, Rachel, who was also barren. It takes us forward from here to Hannah, who was barren, until the Lord answers her prayer and brings forth Samuel, who is the last judge of Israel. It takes us even further into the New Testament with Elizabeth, who we are told was barren before God granted her the ability to conceive with her husband and produce forth John the Baptist. The prophets identify our God as the one who makes the barren woman rejoice and be full. He is the one who enables them to conceive. And as, as he is called, he is the God who works wonders, as we heard about in the text. But if we are to uh, put our hopes in a barren couple to produce uh, the, the deliverer, then we will not find our hopes satisfied in their, in their fruitfulness, in their natural ability. But God shows us again and again that all things are possible with him, that he is the God of wonders. And this uh, brings, you know, to an unlikely couple comes an unlikely visitor. An angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and informs her that the time for her being barren is ended. She will bear a child. And when she does, he will be dedicated as a Nazarite. Uh, now, if you're looking for uh, more information on Nazarite vows, uh, essentially all of number six, uh, chapter six, is all about Nazarite vows. 
Um, and, and in that chapter, if you go read it, it's laid out. And basically, to, be, to take a Nazarite vow was to set yourself apart for a short, uh, I say short, not like super short, but a, but a, a, a short, you know, we talk about short-term missions is like one to two years, that kind of short-term, <laughs> maybe, you know, six months, year, two years, something like that in that range. Uh, so, uh, so you would set yourself apart, consecrate yourself to God for a particular vow, a particular service to the Lord, and, and during that time, you were not allowed to shave your head your, because your hair, as it grew, was a sign of your consecration to God. And the longer your hair is, the longer you have been consecrated in your life unto God. And this may help explain the significance of Samson's hair uh, in this story, and I'm sure we will be coming back to that. But you're also not to drink anything that came from the vine. In number six, it says not even vinegar, which is a byproduct of the fruit of the vine. Uh, which is good because nobody wants to drink vinegar anyway. But um, you would also not be allowed to touch anything dead, uh, not even a close relative who uh, died. You were, you were not allowed to touch, touch them, touch their dead body. Um, and uh, bear in mind later on in the story when Samson eats honey out of the carcass, the dead body of a dead lion. You were not allowed to touch anything dead. Uh, now, if, uh, if a Nazarite uh, violated his vow, he would have to shave his head and start over. He'd have to shave his head, make a sacrifice for breaking the vow, for the sin of breaking the vow, and start all over again. Okay? But Samson, we note, is not committing himself to voluntary short-term service to God. God is consecrating Samson as a Nazarite for the whole of his life, which means that the whole of Samson's life is consecrated for service to the Lord. There is something special about Samson and what God wants to do through him, what he will do through him. And the angel says to Manoah's uh, uh, wife, uh, this child will begin, key word, begin to save Israel from the Philistines. This all helps explain Manoah's uh, confusion and his dis desire to speak with the angel again. I think the first time I read the passage, I'm kind of down on Manoah a bit. But then the more I read it, the more I realize I would be asking a lot of the same questions Manoah would be doing. I'd be praying a lot of the same prayers that Manoah would be praying. Um, and so, because Manoah uh, and uh, his wife um, apparently did not know uh, that this was an angel, even though she said he looked like an angel. Um, but perhaps he was a, a prophet of God, or they, they, they don't know what's going on. Um, but they, uh, Manoah prays, and the angel returns, and, and Manoah understandably wants to know more. Uh, he says, you know, that he, look, he, and notice, he says, when your word comes true, he believes what the, what the angel said. He believes what God's saying, what he's going to do. But he says, but how will he live? Give me some more information, right? More information, please. Uh, you, he's going to be Nazarite. What's he going to be doing? You know, like, well, how is this going to happen? You know, so these are all questions that we would ask. What's his mission? What's, what's he going for? Uh, and, and the angel repeats most but not all that he said uh, uh, to him. I don't know if the, guy was, if the angel was annoyed with Manoah. <laughs> I don't know. But he just says, look, everything I told your wife, that's what she needs to do. I'm not telling you anymore. <laughs> he doesn't give him any more information. Manoah is not on the need-to-know list, apparently, about what Samson's going to be doing. So uh, Manoah asks then to feed the messenger of the Lord, uh, which is hospitality. 
Um, and the angel says that, uh, that he will accept a, a burnt offering on behalf of God. And Manoah, of course, not understanding uh, who is standing before him, prepares the offering. And then as fire consumes it, flames go heavenward. So does the angel. And finally, Manoah realizes who he's talking to. Um, and, 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 you know, in, in truth, he and his wife both realize it at the same time because they both hit the ground in worship and reverence for God. Uh, as as it's all well, as it's all happening is, and, and and I think we need to understand Manoah and his wife's response together as a unit to really understand what's going on here. Because um, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of roll my eyes a bit at Manoah. He's a little thick skulled. His wife's a little sharper on the draw about what's going on here. Um, I mean, how silly is it that he would suddenly think that God would kill him since God was the one who sent the messenger in the first place? But also, the more I thought about it, I read some commentaries that were kind of making this argument, and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, good point. And the more I reflected on it, I was like, yeah, I wasn't there. I've never seen fire consume food off of a rock, and, and, and a man basically, uh, that, uh, somebody I thought was a man in front of me, suddenly turn into an angel and go up into heaven, right? I've never seen that. I've never, I've never, like, I've never just had that in, in that response, just that immediate impulse to drop to the ground out of dread before the holy. And so, uh, you know, uh, Manoah knew well what actually many Christians today have forgotten: that God is holy. He is holy. And as as Moses said, no one sees the face of God and lives. Manoah is a man who maintained his reverence for the Lord, and we would do well also to learn from Manoah to, to retain a holy fear of God. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, says the New Testament writer in Hebrews. <laughs> right? But, but Manoah's wife completes the picture. You can't just have Manoah. You've got to have his wife, too. Because it isn't simply that God, it's not, it's not the case that, that Manoah's wife is arguing, no, 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 God's not holy. No, it's not true that uh, if you see God's face, you can't live, like Moses said. She's not denying anything that he said. But she's, but she's saying, but we, ought to not, but we ought not allow the holiness of God to cloud our understanding of God's mercy or his redemptive work. And so Manoah's wife presents uh, to Manoah, her husband, uh, three undeniable pieces of logical evidence to prove that God is not about to destroy them. First, he accepted our burnt offering, right? If he wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the offering. Secondly, he showed us this amazing sight of fire and an angel going up because he wanted us to see it, not so that he could just immediately turn around and, you know, zap us with a lightning bolt. And third, he told us about what's about to happen and I got to have a baby. So, so like, I'm not going to do that if I'm dead. Right? So, that's, so that is, you know, uh, like this is not, and Manoah goes, oh, good point. Good point. Good points. And wouldn't you know it, the angel's word came true. Manoah's wife conceived and bore a son. He grew, the, angel, uh, the, the narrator says, and was blessed by the Lord. And we are told that the spirit of the Lord began to stir inside Samson as he grew up right outside the territory of Israel's enemies. That's interesting because the word begin pops up twice in this text. 
once at the beginning from the angel speaking to Manoah's wife, indicating the purpose of this child, which was to begin to save Israel from her enemies. And then again to indicate God's beginning the work of deliverance by his spirit in his chosen judge, his chosen deliverer. And we know what God will do because we know what God begins, he will complete. What God begins, he will complete. Now it's interesting that Samson begins salvation here for Israel. He begins the deliverance from the Philistines, but he doesn't complete it. Even in his death, he doesn't complete it. Uh, it won't actually be until David, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, that it says, the Philistines were finally subdued, conquered. Samson is essentially a forerunner to David. Now, there are a number of modern interpreters who I love and respect, and pastors who I am friends with who want to compare the birth narrative of Samson to the birth narrative, birth narrative of Christ. Not saying that Samson is Jesus, but rather that Samson points to Jesus directly, uh, through prophetically, through a tight situation as a deliverer. And they compare a lot of the angelic visitations and uh, the blessing as the child grew and and kind of go through, go through all the parallels. And there, there are a number of parallels where you can read it and go, oh, that's, that's an interesting case there. Um, and I will say it is right to say that Samson is the promised deliverer for Israel and that as such he points to the greater deliverer to come in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. I'm no problem saying Jesus is the greater Samson. No problem there. But for my money, there is a much stronger connection in the New Testament between Samson and not Jesus, but, but between Samson and John the Baptist. John the Baptist also has a birth narrative. John the Baptist also specifically has a mother who was barren. Mary was not barren. She's never indicated as barren. All right? uh, and so, but Elizabeth was. Also, his father spoke with an angel. When he was born, the people wondered what this child would be. What he would do, not unlike Manoah himself. And also, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. The word is not used in Luke 1.15, but, but the same instruction is given. Do, no razor shall cut his hair. No strong drink, right? He grew up with, he grew up with no strong drink. That he grew up with, as, as a Nazarite. If you look at what, it, what was he eating? What was he wearing? He was fulfilling Nazarite vows. Here was a man consecrated for service unto God. And also, finally, both Samson and John the Baptist were beginners. Samson began the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines that David would complete. Just as John the Baptist began the deliverance of God's people by preparing the way for the Messiah who would come and bring the kingdom in. And the Messiah came. And so Samson's birth instructs us to know where salvation begins. And it begins with the Lord. It starts with him and not with us. 
The only way it starts with human beings is that we provide the sin that requires the redemption. But God initiates the salvation. He brings it to, to we who are unworthy. We who even, because of the deception of the flesh, are not even aware that we need salvation. And are most certainly unworthy of it. God renews his church, even though his church has often fallen off the way off the cliff and gone to the gone to the, the wrong way. God renews and reforms his church. And God initiates salvation through a barren couple to bring forth one who would begin the process of Israel's deliverance. And likewise, we are reminded that it was 400 years from the last words of the Old Testament to the ministry of John the Baptist who would prepare the way for the Messiah. So where does that leave us? What does this mean? It means that the redemption of God begins, the redemption that God begins, he will complete. He will complete the work that he has begun not only with John the Baptist, but the work that he's begun in you and I in applying his grace to us, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6. For here, in, here is the Christian hope that what God has begun in us in Jesus Christ, he will complete in his kingdom. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but it often begins in small places. It works in small churches. And is at work in small ways that may be even hard for us to see. But God will complete his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, because we may find ourselves in situations like Samson's parents. Where we have become accustomed to servitude, to oppression and sin. Where we just don't even have a mind to understand your word, to understand what salvation is. And yet you will come in with your word. You will come in with your truth. You bring in the light of your grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not because our, your church is faithful that we know that the church cannot fail. It is because we know that you are faithful, Lord. How often we have, in our own individual lives, even, our, even as a church here at Bailey Presbyterian, as a denomination, as in church history, how we have fallen short of your glory. Yet it is not us. It is not to us that we look for redemption, for deliverance, for renewal, for strengthening, for reformation. It is you. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would indeed reform your church, that you would revive your church, that you would renew it. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work even in the midst of our present darkness. May we never lose hope as we, as we consider the story of Samson and his parents, as we consider these dark days in Israel's history in the, in the book of Judges. May we have our own hope kindled as we see you at work through one family, one couple, one child. And Lord, here you are, having worked through Mary and Joseph, sending your son to die for our sins, 
who stands in resurrection glory as the head of his church. And he will not fail, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, where we are faithless, he is faithful. So we pray that our rest and trust would ever be in Jesus Christ, that we would renew our hope and give you thanks. Father, for the salvation you begin, you will complete. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.